0: So we're in the, uh, the, the last week of a five-week series here, going through the first three chap- chapters of Ezekiel. And um, we've been talking about the watcher, that being God, and the watchman, that being Ezekiel. Or uh, obviously the implication is that we would also be God's watchman. Last week we talked about what a watchman does. He, uh, he looks out for impending danger and he warns the people of impending danger and he then points them towards life. Um, and now that is what, is what God's going to give Ezekiel some further uh, instruction on what that's going to look like. And what we see in this passage is that throughout this we see that God is here. He's He's, he's everywhere. He's aware of everything. Uh, he is with us. He is with Ezekiel. And in this passage, we're going to see that he's going to protect Ezekiel. He's going to be protecting Ezekiel from the people around them, him, but also he's going to protect Ezekiel from himself. We can be grateful for that, right? We know the areas where we need protection from ourselves. Um, and we're also going to see in this passage that God is particular, um, he is not uh, the, the phrase that comes to mind is that god uh, God has an unconditional love, but unconditional love does not equal unconditional acceptance. Uh, he loves everyone, but that doesn't mean that he, he is going to accept everyone because actions do have some implication on whether or not we can have fellowship with God um, now uh, one of the things that you may be aware of is, in the last couple of years, uh, we had Mark. Mark Souter was the pastor here at Hilltop Community Church, the music pastor. And Mark made some mistakes in his in his um, in his private life. He made some mistakes in his private life, uh, things outside of work that had some pretty serious consequences. I'm not going to get into exactly what those things were, but Mark made some mistakes, and now Mark is Mark is in jail in Douglas County Jail for a misdemeanor that he committed. Um, And he is spending 364 days, just shy of a year, in jail. Now, what I want want to say from this is, is a couple of things. One is that we love Mark. And I believe that Mark loves the Lord. But I also understand that Mark made mistakes and the law did what the law was supposed to do. The law is supposed to reward those who do good and be a terror, literally, to those who do evil. And Mark's actions were wrong. They were hurtful to others. And so he's spending time, and and there are certainly consequences for that. We want to uplift him and his family through this time. Uh, Very many of the people from the body will will spend time with Mark on uh, a certain day of the week. There's opportunity to visit him, and many members of the staff and from the body have spent time with Mark. We're praying with him. We see that his heart is repented, and that he's growing. But the big thing that I want to show you, and why is Kurt talking about this, uh, one is that we take the health and wellness the entire health and wellness of every staff member, every pastor here at Hilltop very seriously. Um, and, and so Joel and I, we spend time with each other every week. Um, I spend one-on-one time with, with a couple members of the staff every week. Joel does that as well. We care about the spiritual wellness, the emotional wellness, the physical wellness of every single staff member here. And it's something that we're devoted to. Um, uh, the elders, uh, there's six elders at the church Jim, Jim Winans is the chair um, Merlin Wade is on that, Sean Sever is on that Dave Norvell is on the elder board as well Joel and myself are on that as well and we look to the, the health and wellness of our staff but we also recognize that actions have consequences and what you're going to see in this passage with, with Ezekiel is that actions have consequences and God is particular he cares about us. He wants relationship with us. He wants relationship with Mark. And Mark is seeking that out. And and what we're seeing through Mark is an example of what it is to repent and return to the Lord. And ultimately that's what God is trying to do with the nation of with the with the, the nation of Judah. Now, where we're at in the history of of Israel is there's three great kings. There's Saul, David, and Solomon. And then Solomon's son, um, he sort of gets to a place where he messes some things up. He makes some economic decisions that the ten northern tribes don't like. And so the ten northern tribes, known as Israel, um, they they break off from the southern two tribes, Judah, and the nation splits in two about 931 B.C., the, the northern nation lives for a while under its own rule. Um, and, and then Assyria comes in in 722 and the northern nation is conquered. The southern nation is going on for a little bit while longer. And where we're at in the history of that is Ezekiel is one of the priests in the southern nation of Judah. And uh, Judah has rebelled against Babylon's authority. Babylon has come in and removed uh, the leadership of Israel. And Babylon has has taken that leadership, including the priesthood, to, um, to Babylon. And that's where Ezekiel is. He's in exile from the southern nation of Judah in Babylon. And God says that I want you to give a message to these exiles about what they need to do to repent and have relationship with me again. Now, one of the things that we've been doing as we go through this series is we've been, we've been confronting cultural norms. And on your handout, we want to we engage, we want to understand, but we want to be able to confront the cultural norms that exist around us. And one of the things that you'll hear people say is, I'm free to do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt anyone. I'm free to do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt anyone. Now, to me, that's a confusing sentence because how do you define hurt? I don't know what that means. Uh, how do we define hurt? God certainly has a definition for what that is, but is this a matter of personal preference? Is it is it hurtful for me to speak truth if it's offensive? If I share the truth of what God says and you find that offensive, is that was I hurtful? Who decides what's hurtful and what's not? Is this all subjective or is there an objective truth? Is there a difference between my truth and the truth? Is there such a thing as the truth? Is there absolute truth or is truth always based on on relative terms. This last weekend I got to go over to Bayside Church and I went to an apologetics conference and one of the men that spoke at that conference, his name is Gabe Lyons and Gabe Lyons has a book out called Good Faith and in that book uh, he works with Barna Research, a guy named Dave Kingman and um, they work on different surveys and things and then what do the numbers tell us? And in that book he says that what's developing is a new moral code. In the United States, there's a new moral code that is being developed and is, and is gaining traction. So in this survey, they asked people a, a group of a, a, uh, some questions. The first one is, the, what's the, the best way... There are more statements than questions, and it's do you agree with this or not. The best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. So the best way to understand who you are is to look within yourself. 91% of adult, United States adults say yes. If I want to know who I am, I'm going to do some soul searching and figure out within myself who am I. The Christian worldview on that is quite different. Yet, 76% of practicing Christians agree with that statement. People should not criticize someone else's life choices. 89% of U.S. adults say you should not criticize someone else's life choices. 76% of practicing Christians say you have no right to tell me if I'm doing something wrong or not. You should not criticize my life choices. That's the culture we live in. To be fulfilled in life, you should pursue, you should pursue things that you most desire. 86% of the United States adults agree. 72% of Christians agree. Just whatever you want, go get it. The highest goal in life is to enjoy it as much as possible. 84% of U.S. adults agree, 66% of Christians. The highest goal in life is to enjoy it as much as possible. People can believe whatever they want as long as those beliefs don't affect society. 79% of U.S. adults agree, 61% of Christians. People can believe whatever they want as long as it doesn't affect society. So believe what you want, do what you want, go for it. Any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. 69% of U.S. adults say yes. Any kind of sexual expression between two consenting adults is acceptable. 40% of practicing Christians agree with that statement. What do these numbers tell us? There's a new moral code developing and that moral code really falls in line with this statement that I'm free to do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt anyone. But the definition of hurt, God's version of hurt is lost on our society. And so, but that's, that's where we live, but I think God has far more solid definitions for these things. But I think the problem that, is that Christians, we allow this thinking to change the way that we approach our lives. I may not agree with what these people are saying, but you know what? If nine out of ten people that I meet don't say that I have no right to speak into their life, what, that, to criticize their life choices, then I probably just won't do it. I don't want to confront anybody. I don't want to be the squeaky wheel. I don't want to be the one. I mean, I'd rather rather just kind of shrink back. But I think that God has a greater call for us than that. And I think the problem is that many Christians treat truth like it was mere preference. The the gospel is not a matter of preference. It's a matter of truth. And so what happens is then we give in to our secular or non-religious friends and we fail to share. We allow the secular, the non-religious worldview to affect us enough that we've shrunk back into doing what it says. Whether we agree with it or not, we do what it says. And so I want you want to check out this video from Summit Ministries. This guy's going to talk about what secularism has done to the Christian faith. So there's two things that he said in there that really stood out to me. Faith gets reduced to, pers- to, a, gets reduced to a personal private matter of preference rather than a personal commitment to public truth. When you fall prey to the fact that you're not supposed to tell anybody that their life choices are wrong, your faith gets reduced to a personal private matter of preference rather than a personal commitment to public truth, historical truth. And I would say if that's your view of your faith, biblical faith is much bigger than that. Biblical faith is much bigger than feelings or spiritual sensation. Toby Max says in a song, one of the popular songs recently, he says, Oh, I feel it in my heart. I feel it in my soul. That's how I know. Well, you could feel anything in your heart and in your soul. That's no no way of knowing. That's no way of knowing. Uh, So we've got to get back to talking about faith as if it deals with matters of truth, not preference. Matters of reality, not feeling. One of the guys that spoke this week, and his his name is Mike Lacona. He's a, he's a, a New Testament scholar. And he talked about the fact that when I look at the gospel and the historical facts... He says, I don't, see, I don't see some story that was made up. I see a group of historical facts that at point A, Jesus was alive. At point B, Jesus died on a Roman cross. And at point C, Jesus was alive again. And I don't view that as some story that somebody made up, but the historical facts point to A, he was alive, B, he was dead, and C, he was alive again. So and if the resurrection is true, then then the gospel is true, then Christianity is true, and then I should live like it were true. I don't think or wonder or hope or feel. I know it. Jesus rose from the dead. My faith is real. And so that would change the way that we share him with others, wouldn't it? If if Jesus Christ truly, historically, factually rose from the dead, then that would impact the way that I view being Jesus Christ's watchman. And then I would view his ambassador, his watchman. I would look at this world around me and I would say, these things that I just heard about the new moral code, they they are far from God. And people don't know him. They're living in idolatry far from the true, real God. And that means that their lives kind of stink. They're not experiencing the fullness of what God had intended. And because God cares about those people and God longs to have relationship with them, I am going to love them and care for them and share Jesus in a winsome way. I'm not going to back down from what I know to be true. No matter how much the society says, no matter what, I don't care if it's 99% of the society says you shouldn't share, you shouldn't criticize someone's life choices. If they're not in line with God, then lovingly, right, criticism can be negative or it can be constructive. You can constructively point them towards Christ. And I think that's what God is going to talk to Ezekiel about in this passage. He's going to tell him, this is how I want you to do it. So verse 22 of Ezekiel chapter 3, verses 22 and 23 say, The hand of the Lord was on me there, and he said to me, Get up and go out to the plain, and there I will speak to you. So Ezekiel's in the city, he says, Get up, go out to the plain, and I will speak to you. So I got up and I went to the plain, and behold, the glory of the Lord was standing there, like the glory which I saw By the river Chabar, and I fell on my face. So Ezekiel, the midway through Ezekiel chapter one through halfway through Ezekiel chapter three, um, Ezekiel is in the midst of this vision of the glory of God, and God is revealing to him, "This is who I am. Um, I'm all powerful. I'm almighty. I'm all knowing. I'm everywhere. I'm sovereign. I'm in control. I'm loving, and I righteously judge judge sin." He's He's showing Ezekiel, "This is who I am." And then he gives him his call and his commission and he, and, then he, and then he tells him what he's going to do. And here he comes back and he reminds him of his glory. So God protects his watchmen by reminding them of his glory. We see this throughout scripture. Romans twelve two talks about renewing our minds on the, on the truth of God. John 14, 26 says that the spirit of God will remind us of Jesus' words and actions. God is constantly reminding us of who I am. Uh, I don't remember all the statistics, but Gabe Lyons shared in in there that Bible reading is pretty rare, actually, among Christians. Uh, Most people will only do it once or twice a week. Um, And then then there were links between how often a Bible was read and, and the behavior of the people. And when it got to four times a week, when people were in their Bible four times a week, the numbers on which they practiced their faith skyrocketed. I mean, it went from like, one of the numbers was the people that share, this one I remember, one of the numbers was the people that share their faith um, under four times, when you read the Bible under four times a week, the number of people that share their faith was like in, in the 30%. And he said it went up 180%. So it went from 30 to almost everybody's doing it um, when they read their Bible four times a week. So God is, he, he says, I need to remind you of my glory so that you live in line with it. Right, But that's what he does for Ezekiel here. He reminds him of his glory. He shows up to him again. And because he shows up to him again, Ezekiel is going to live in the way that God longs for him to live. But that's a huge part of our faith. That's a huge part of your walk is time with God, understanding his character, knowing his love, knowing his power, knowing his goodness. And when you have that kind of relationship with him, what you find is you live differently. It's, it's, it's primarily about what you're allowing into your mind, right? Um, if you're not spending in time, time in God's Word, um, your mind will be influenced by whatever you are spending time on. And so if, if you spend all your time in the new moral code, you will probably live like the new moral code. But if you spend time in God's Word with His character in prayer and in fellowship with other believers growing in relationship with Him, you'll live a different way. The next thing we see in verse 24 is that God, uh, God protects his watchmen by restricting their movements. Verse 24, Then the Spirit entered me and made me stand on my feet, and he spoke with me and said to me, Go shut yourself up in your house. Um, this doesn't mean that Ezekiel didn't leave his house, but instead he was to refrain from open fellowship with the people. There, what we see is that it, oftentimes the leaders would come to him at the beginning of chapter 8, 14, and, and chapter 20. Uh, the leaders of the nation, the elders, come to Ezekiel and they say, what is God saying to us? Now God removed Ezekiel from the people, uh, one, to protect him, but also to show the people their rebellion. Uh, Joel's going to talk about this in Romans chapter 1 next week, that when, when people distance themselves from God, eventually what God does is He hands them over to whatever it is they're pursuing. At some point, He, he, he hands them over to that. Okay, And that's what we see with the nation of of Judah is he's kind of reached a point where he's saying, okay, if that's where you're going to go, go. And not only am I going to remove, you're not going to enjoy my presence the way that you could, but you're not even going to enjoy the presence of one of my prophets the way that you could. I want you to understand the distance that you have between you and me is what he's showing these people. But he's also protecting Ezekiel. But God is also in control of Ezekiel's path. God protects Ezekiel by restricting his movements. He's showing the people, you're far from me and I want you to understand that. But he's also saying, Ezekiel, I want to protect you and put you in a place where you will be strong. Now, the nation of Israel did two things throughout its history. Um, when, it, when it left Egypt, uh, what, what do we see? They go into the desert, they, they, they hit it, and uh, Moses goes up to the mountain. And one of the first things that happens within moments is they're like, we need a God to worship, let's make some. And they make the golden calf. And so as, what, what we see with, with Israel is they tended to go all the way over here to Uh, to idolatry. So this side of the stage is is idolatry, and this side of the stage is isolationism. And this is where they tended to go. They tended to go to one of these places. They'd either wander into idolatry, and, uh, you know, let's follow all the gods of the culture around us and not think for ourselves, but just do what the culture around us is doing. Or they go, man, we sure don't want to do that, um, but we better get as far away from the culture as possible and isolate ourselves. Well, what did God want to do through the nation of Israel? He wanted to reveal his character to the world through them. He wanted the world to know him through the nation of Israel. That's what he's doing with the church now. He wants wants the world to know who he is through the church. And so the church can do this too. We can wander off into idolatry and just do what the world around us is doing and give in to the ways that the world is thinking and the practices that it takes and and engage in idolatry. Or we can do this isolationism thing where we totally withdraw, get inside the Christian bubble and don't do anything, right? I'm safe here. That's not what God is doing with Ezekiel. Because he's going to send him directly to the people at times. He's actually going to say, walk out your door and go tell them a message. We're going to see that at the beginning of the next chapter. And other times he's going to say, I want you to be this light that they will walk towards so that they can know the truth. So what you see is it's not isolationism and it's not idolatry. But there's a place in the middle where the life of God, the life of Christ, the character of Christ is revealed through us. Not in this place of isolationism where we go, the world is so scary, we don't want to go out there. Or this place of idolatry where we go, the world is pretty tantalizing, I think I want to go out there. But in this place where we remain in Christ, we stay true to his truth, and he guides our path. He restricts our movements, not towards idolatry and not towards isolationism, but towards life in him. And in that place, he's revealed. That's what he's doing with Ezekiel. But his movements are restricted. You're not going to go wander out there and be idolatrous like the rest of them. But I also don't want you to go hide in a cave and never talk to the people. You're going to talk to them when I want you to talk to them. And you're going to say to them what I want you to say to them. Verse 25, God's protection does not mean relaxing circumstances. If you haven't figured this out yet, I've been following him very long. Verse 25, as for you, son of man, they will put ropes on you and bind you with them so that you cannot go out among them. Now, this is most likely figurative language. There's no historical evidence that at one point in time, Ezekiel was tied up. Um, what he's saying here is that they, they're, they're, they're going to they're gonna fight against you and what you have to say. They're going to try and tie down what you have to say. Don't tell me. Don't criticize my life choices. Don't tell me what's right and wrong. Don't talk to me about your God. Don't talk to me about the historical evidence of Christ. Don't talk to me about biblical sexuality. Don't talk to me about just be quiet. That is certainly not what we've been called to. It'll be the voices that you hear tell you, don't do those things. That's not nice. You're hurtful. You're insensitive. You're going against the culture. You're wrong. But the fact of the matter is, you're not. Because it's not your truth. This isn't personal preference. This is gospel truth. This is God's truth. But if you go out there, if you step out in faith and you do what God calls you to do and you act as a watchman and you say that way of life is dangerous and I think God has way more for you than that. That brand of sexuality is is not God's brand of sexuality. And if you chase after that, you're going to experience hurt because when you give yourself away in that way, you're giving away a part of yourself you never get back. And the emotional damage that comes with that is something that God is trying to protect you from. Biblical sexuality says that sexuality is wonderful. It's great. God created it. It's like fire. It's like fire. It's a wonderful thing when it's in the fireplace, but if the fire jumps out of the fireplace and hops on your carpet. Somebody's going to get burned. So keep it where it belongs. Biblical sexuality says God created it. It's wonderful. He created this desire. He created this passion within you, and he wants you to have intimacy with your spouse inside of marriage, inside the fireplace that God has created. But if you take that out, you're given something you can't take back, and you're going to get burned. God has more for you than that. You act as a watch piece. That's dangerous. But instead, let me show you where life is. And you speak the truth. And you do it in a way that's constructive, not destructive. One of the things that's happened in this country is we're polarized, right? Everybody either rides a donkey or an elephant, and they all want to stomp each other. But that's not what God says we should do. Now, there are certain things that I get angry at. When we were at the conference, uh, Gabe Lyons shared that, uh, that he, he and his wife, when they go to have their first child, they find out their first child has Down syndrome. They look into the numbers and they find out that nine, this will crush your heart, nine out of ten children with Down syndrome are aborted. They, they, p- parents find out that our child has Down syndrome and they say, kill it. Nine out of ten times. Now that hurts me and it also makes me a little bit ticked off. So I can wander out there and start slapping people around. Or here's what Gabe did. He said, he said what we did is we decided that we, were gonna ch- we wanted to change those numbers, but we wanted to do it the right way. So what did we do? One, we had our son. And he showed pictures of his son. The kid's amazing. And he said, our son enriches our lives in ways that we never saw coming. It's challenging, no doubt. So he said, we put together a 50-page pamphlet. We took pictures of our son, and we met other people that had Down Down syndrome children. And we took pictures, and we talked about life with them, and the challenges that you face, and the joys that come along with it. And we created this 50-page pamphlet. And he said, we took it into the hospital, to the OBGYN. And we said, when you ultrasound somebody, and you find out that their child has Down syndrome, will you give them this? Will you give them information on what it is to have a child with Down syndrome and the wonderful things that they bring to their life, but also the challenges that they're faced with? Will you give them this? Because we want to see 9 out of 10 drop dramatically. And he said, we didn't know what the hospital was going to say, but they said, we were, they, we were shocked. We were amazed. We were, we were glad. They said, we've never had anything like this. We want to give it to parents. And now that's not just in the hospital back east where he lives, but that's the pamphlet they give out around the country for somebody that. So so here there's the constructive way to say that's dangerous, that's wrong, that's hurtful. Don't do that. Let me show you where life is instead and what it is to bless and nurture and care for. Right? That's the constructive way to reach out to the society and say that's the wrong direction, this is the right direction. Let me tell you and in the process let me tell you about this God who knit that kid together that way. He's not an accident. God made him that way, and and he he has him come out of my wife's womb so that we could love him, so that we could know him, so that we could nurture him, so that he he could build our lives into something we never thought they could be. He's no accident. But there's this wonderful designer who knows what life is, and he makes it happen. And there's this creator that loves us, and there's sin, and we fell, and mankind, there's a way that it ought to be. God created it in, a, in this fashion, and this is the way that it ought to be. And then there was this fall where mankind messed it up, and this is how it is. There's brokenness, and there's sin, and there's idolatry, and there's distance from God. And then, but God has this redemption plan where Jesus comes along, and, 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 and this, is, this is what it could be. This is what life could be if you follow Jesus Christ. And then he also has this restoration plan. There's fall, there's the way it ought to be. There's sin, uh, or excuse me, there's creation, there's the way it ought to be. There's fall, there's the way that it is. There's redemption, and there's everything that we could have in Christ. And there's also this restoration plan where things get back to the way that they were intended to be. And there's a God who's seen through human history to that. And you could know him. And you could follow him. And you could have relationship with him. Right? So we want to be constructive when we, uh, when we, when we move people towards the Lord. But, but that will not be a relaxing time. If you're looking for easy, comfortable retirement or a vacation at the beach, Jesus probably has some other things in mind for you. Not that you can't do those things, but there's more to life than that. Verse 26 and 27, we see that God protects his watchmen by restraining their biases. Verse 26, Moreover, I will make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that you will be mute and cannot be a man who rebukes them, for they are a rebellious house. But when I speak to you, I will open your mouth and you will say to them, Thus says the Lord, He who hears, let him hear, and he who refuses, let him refuse, for they are a rebellious house. What's this muteness this muteness about? Ezekiel's muteness, uh, one commentator says, Ezekiel's muteness will last approximately seven and one-half years until until the fall of Jerusalem. Yet he will deliver several oral messages uh, in the intervening period. The concept of muteness, therefore, is not of total speechlessness throughout the seven and a half years. Rather, Ezekiel is restrained from speaking publicly among the people in contrast to the normal oral ministry of the prophets. So why does God do this to Ezekiel? One, I think he's protecting Ezekiel from his own biases. Do you remember what what it said when God gave Ezekiel this ministry? He said, I went away in the rage of my spirit. I was ticked off at the ministry that God gave me. Probably ticked off at his countrymen for living the way that they were. Probably ready to say, it's me against them. I'm right, they're wrong. Let me tell them how they're wrong.'" But the problem with evil, the problem with sin is it hits every single one of us. If you've ever investigated your own heart, you know that it's hit you too. And so God restrains Ezekiel's biases, but he also wants to make very clear that when Ezekiel speaks, it's from God. He says, you will be mute and someone who cannot rebuke them. Now this, this wasn't the normal prophetic ministry, but it was also a little bit different than what God says in Leviticus chapter 19, 15-17. Here's what he says about about judging and reproving one's neighbor. He says, you shall do no injustice in judgment. Notice he doesn't say you shouldn't judge. Notice he doesn't say you shouldn't pay attention to the people around you and how they're living your lives. You shouldn't say anything to them. Just be quiet. He doesn't say that. He does say that you're supposed to pay attention to your neighbor. You're supposed to watch how they're living and you're supposed to do no injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the, per, to the poor, no def, nor defer to the great, but you are to judge your neighbor fairly. You shall not go about as a slanderer among your people, and you are not to act against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You are not to go about as a slanderer among your people. Well, let me tell you about them Democrats, or let me tell you about them Republicans, or let me tell you about them people that practice sexual sin. And then here's the list of things where they're dumb and I'm right. Don't do it. It's not constructive. It's not in line with God's will. You shall not hate your fellow countrymen in your heart. You shall surely surely reprove your neighbor, but you shall not incur sin because of him. You shall not take your vengeance nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Ephesians chapter 4 says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speaking truth to one another, uh, speak truth each one of you to his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Take a look around you and notice the things that are wrong and be ticked off at the wrong because you don't like to see people hurt each other, but don't sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And In other words, uh, it's not about when the sun goes down or when it doesn't. Don't harbor anger for long periods. But instead deal with them because if you don't deal with them, if you don't take them to prayer in God, you're going to give the devil an opportunity to turn that anger into sin. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one that is in need. Verse 29, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment. Build people up. Constructive criticism. Constructive says, this is hurtful, don't go there. This is life, come over here. So that it will give grace to those who hear. God does not want you to live that lifestyle because you're hurting yourself and the people around you. But let me tell you about this gracious God who deals with the hurt that you've caused other people and will also lead you to a life where you will no longer hurt other people but love and bless them. He'll remove you from selfishness and self-centeredness and egotistical living and he'll take you to a place that is Christ-centered and other-centered and you'll live not for your own glory but Christ's glory and you'll live not for your own pleasure but for the growth of other people. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption, but let all bitterness and wrath and clamor and slander be put away from you. Please do this the next time we, the next time that there's somebody being put on the Supreme Court, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away with you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another just as Christ also has forgiven you. See, God wants to protect us From our biases. He wants to restrain our biases. Because our biases may or may not be his biases. The culture around us biases very likely are not what God cares about. And I I don't want you to hear the wrong thing. God is particular. I don't know that I would call him biased. He says, I care about every single person. And I have a standard that I want you to live in because I know what's best for you. It's the fire in the fireplace. You can take anything in your life and say they're good things so long as they're within God's boundaries. But if you take them out of God's boundaries and you make them idols and you live for them, then they become dangerous. They'll burn you. So what do we see with Ezekiel? We see that he he experiences the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that guides his path. Uh, the Spirit lifts him up and guides him out to the plain and takes him to his house and restricts his movements. It gives him it gave him peace in the midst of uh, circumstances that we would probably consider pretty undesirable. It kept him from adding to or distracting from God's message. You want know to know the thing about Ezekiel? Is he was not known for his theology. His secondary theology, um, that's not what he was known for. He wasn't a dispensationalist. He wasn't reformed. He wasn't a Pharisee. He wasn't a Sadducee. Um, The way that he thought about secondary things was not what he was known for. If you're a Christian that's known for those things, spend more time on the love of Christ than you do your secondary theology because you're distracting. He was known as God's man speaking God's truth. He pointed to Christ. And ultimately, that's what Ezekiel is. He's a picture of Christ. Ezekiel was confined to his house, but Jesus was despised and and rejected by men. A man of sorrow, familiar with suffering. Ezekiel was made mute, but Jesus was led like a lamb to slaughter, as sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his, his mouth. Ezekiel was bound with ropes. Jesus was nailed to a cross and suffered there for, any, transgress- for, for every, any and every transgression, not of his own, but of ours. The hardship of Ezekiel's ministry doesn't point to some great moral or courageous prophet that we should emulate. Rather, it points to the one Jesus Christ, who lived Ezekiel's plight with excruciating detail. As we read what Ezekiel did, we must see how it points to what Jesus has done. If you leave this passage thinking, I must be like Ezekiel, we will have good desire, but not the greatest desire. I don't want to be conformed to the image of Ezekiel. I want to be conformed to the image of Christ. And and as this takes place, I find that I have the right to do whatever I want. Not that I have the right to do whatever I want, but I have the right to go where Jesus' heart, heart leads me. When, I, when what I want is in line with Jesus' says, I won't hurt anyone, but instead I'll love them like I never could before. Ultimately, this is a picture of the gospel. Because when Christ calls us, he doesn't say, follow me, you know, take up, take up, your, take up your, uh, your 401k and follow me. He says, take up your cross and follow me. He doesn't say, get, get whatever you need to be comfortable and come with me. He says, take the thing, you, when you follow me, it's a, it's a surrender of your will. And that's what Ezekiel has to do. And so Ezekiel's, uh, the restrictions of Ezekiel's mo- mo- movements and the restraining of his, re- of his speech, let me start that again because it got all weird. The restricting of Ezekiel's movements and the restraining of his speech reveals that God is particular about the routines of his people's lives. He cares about what you do with your life. God has set up boundaries for his people to protect them and to conform them to to his image. That's what this is about. I want you to be, I've put these boundaries in place. You know, the statement, I can do whatever I want as long as I don't hurt anybody. God says that's not accurate. I have these boundaries in place and I want you to live in line with my will, with what my character is, with what what my version of righteousness and holiness is. Because I'm God and you're not. So stop pretending like you are. And fall in line with me. And I have your best in mind. And I also have an identity for you where you're my child. And you're, you're a co-heir with Christ. And, and you're loved. And you're holy. And you're a saint. But I also have this part of my, your identity where you're my watchman. And you're my ambassador. And I want you to take seriously the fact that you're to speak on my behalf. And when you speak, I want it to be my words. Not the Republican Party's. When you speak, I want it to be my words, not the, not the worldview that's around you. I want you to speak for me so that there's no confusion about what the message is. Heavenly Father, I love you so much. Lord Jesus Christ, your love is so good. I thank you that you restrain me and my biases. I thank you that you restrict my movements and you don't lead me towards idolatry and you don't lead me towards isolationism, but you put me in this place in the middle where I can be a vessel of your life and your love and your truth. God, I pray that we would be constructive with this society around us, that we wouldn't look to just beat it up, but that we would look to change it into your image. And that happens by sharing your truth in a loving and winsome way, a warning of danger and pointing to life. we be your watchmen, be your ambassadors, all the while empowered by your Holy Spirit, embracing the identity that you've given us, given us living in line with your word and for your glory. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.